Hello everyone, this is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project, and I just want to take this time to personally thank all of our monthly supporters. We could not do what we do without giving from people like you. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. And if you're not a monthly supporter and you would like to become one, you can go to jude3project.org and hit the donate tab and sign up. We are grateful for you and we hope you enjoy today's new episode. God bless. Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. What's up, everybody? This is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project. And I'm so excited to be here with my friend, Dr. Esau McCauley, who has a new book out. I got my copy here, Reading While Black. Uh, how are you feeling, Esau? Um, it's good to have people finally have access to something I've been working on for the last few years. So it's an exciting day for me. Awesome. You sound like you're tired, like you're excited. Uh, no. <laughs> I, I teach all day on Tuesday and Thursday. So I talk from eight to three and then I was a father. So I took my son out to his soccer practice and we had dinner. So, you know, they, my kids didn't care that it was book release day. They were like, daddy, I need you to take me to soccer. So that's what I was really up to in the afternoon. I don't know what everybody else does when they release books, but I, I parents. <laughs> awesome. Well, we're on the fourth day of your virtual uh, launch party. We've had interviews from Show Baraka, Dr. Vince Bontu, Dr. Christina Edmondson, which they all did a fantastic job. Um, so great to have them. Um, for those who don't know who you are, but before you do that, everybody who's watching, make sure in the comment section, y'all tell us where y'all watching from. Share this uh, with your friends. We want as many people to see this as possible. Um, and so share that with your friends. Take this moment and share it on your timeline. Tag a friend um, and tell them to grab Dr. McCauley's new book. Um, so <laughs> Reading While Black. Uh, and we're sponsored by uh, IVP, the kind folks at University Press. So thank you, IVP, for sponsoring this launch party for Dr. McCauley. Um, so for those who haven't seen this and don't know who you are, just tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Yes, I'm an assistant professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. I am a priest in the Anglican Church in North America. I grew up in the Black Baptist Church. Um, I'm married. I have four kids. I also write things um, popularly besides this um, more academic work. I wrote, I'm a contributing writer for The New York Times. I've had things that appear in The Washington Post, Christianity Today, among other places. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm excited that you're we're here uh, and it was your idea to host this on the G3 Project platform. Why did you want to host this on the G3 Project platform? Well, for me, it was a bit of full circle because I think the first interview that I ever did was with you about um, studying scripture. And so I thought it would be important for me to come back to an intentionally black space to kind of celebrate this book which is really written for a community like the people who listen to Jude 3 who want to know what they believe and why. And so for me, it made perfect sense to come to hang out with Lisa and the Jude 3 people. So um, I'm glad that I get a chance to do it. Awesome. Uh, I refer to Esau now as famous Esau. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, how many of you in the comment section have your copy already? Tell us if you have your copy. We want to see, uh, your cop uh, see that you have your copy as you're joining with us. And if you have some questions about uh, the book, we're gonna try to ask Esau some questions after I ask him my questions uh, about the chapter on slavery in the Bible, yes. uh, which uh, I don't know if I'm free to say, but I'm gonna say it because it's come to my mind that this kind of chapter was sparked from your interview you did with G3. Is that correct? Yes. Um, yeah, so, well, the some of the ideas in the chapter were from when we had them you, you asked me to do an interview about three or four years ago about slavery in the bible and as is my custom i didn't prepare <laughs> so I, I kind of pulled up i pulled up and then and the, and, and the cameras went live and i just started talking out the side of my mouth and then i started saying oh some of this stuff sounds like it's true i need to remember that later and so when i um 
when I got ready to write the book, I knew that the last chapter, um, this is before I think we really got to meet, know each other. I knew the last chapter on the in the book had to be about slavery. Mm-hmm. Even though I, I, this is the chapter I didn't want to write. There's two chapters mm-hmm. in the book that I didn't want to write. I didn't want to write about slavery and I didn't want to write about black anger. But mm-hmm. I knew that I couldn't write about a book about African-American interpretation as an exercise in hope without dealing head on with a real cause of despair for black people as it relates to the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, which is the reality of slavery in the Bible. So I didn't have like a predetermined set of answers or a path that I wanted to take other than some things that we had said during that podcast. But I knew it was something I had to address in the book. Mm-hmm. And, and you some, people are, some people are going to love it. And some people are going like, to hate it. You're going to have to just deal with that and get out your feelings. I did the best that I could. Okay. Let's start with the hate. Um, I, you say I always ask you and have you do easy stuff. Uh, so <laughs> I, I, I didn't hear you say what I always, you always ask me what to do easy stuff. Yes. <laughs> the sexuality and slavery is I yeah. call you for the easy stuff. Uh, you titled this the freedom of the slaves. Why was it important that an important title for you as it relates to talking about slavery in the Bible? Well, I wanted to talk about, I wanted to begin with this idea that, that God wills our freedom. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't want to begin. I want to begin with like what I think, what I came to at the, at the conclusion of the, of my study, which is that God wants us to be free. That God wills all the oppressed people to be free. And so I um, I called it the freedom of the slaves. But actually, the most important part is the subtitle. You're going to ask me about the subtitle of the chapter. Hey, go ahead. Penitence triumph, because what happened? I was reading the cross and the lynching tree. For those of you who have it. Mm-hmm. I'm reading The Cross and the Lynching Tree by James Cone. And James Cone quotes um, a part of the question that Pennington asked in this chapter that I also quote about, uh, you know, what what if, if God kind of supports slavery, he needs another religion, another faith, another. Um, and so on The Cross and the Lynching Tree, James Cone uses that same quote to kind of talk about this angst that black people feel as we as we deal with these realities. And interestingly enough, I was like really intrigued. That's like, well, James, Crossing Lynch is a great book. Well, what did Pennington say? And so James in Crossing the Lynch Tree, there's just a quote. And so I went back and read the rest of um, Pennington's argument about slavery as someone himself who was formerly enslaved. And so that gave me the framework to begin to think through it. And so I was really influenced in this chapter by Pennington's own argument, the things that he said. And so I felt like the freedom of the slave was like a a key part because I thought that it was important for us if we're going to ask the question about slavery in like our day Mm -hmm. to actually listen to the to the words of someone who personally experienced the realities of slavery but was a Christian in that time Mm -hmm. and so seeing how he made sense of it and how other Christians that made sense of it was pivotal to me so I actually rely more on in that sense an ancient argument than like modern exegetical technique. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned that some people are going to hate it. Why do you think some people will not like it? Because it may it may seem like special pleading. There's a lot of ways that people deal with slavery in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways which they try to deal with slavery in the Bible is to say, well, slavery is not that bad in the Bible. Therefore, what happened to Americans isn't that bad. Therefore, the fact that the Bible includes slavery is okay. And so there's this tendency to kind of downplay the badness of slavery in the Bible to kind of excuse the depictions of slavery in those texts. Yeah, like an indigenous so, ever to. Yeah, it was, just, it was just like basically being like a boss and a coworker. I was like, well, no, that, that's not what it was. So mm-hmm. there was like that problem. And so me saying slavery was horrible in the biblical era, it had real problems. As on one side, some people aren't going to like that. The other part is some people say, well, because the Bible contains depictions of slavery, Bible, Bible talks about slavery, the only path forward for the Christian is the kind of rejection of, of scripture full stop. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the thing that I was trying to deal with is how do we take seriously what the Bible says about slavery? We don't sugarcoat it. And how can we somehow not talk about good slavery, but talk about the ways in which the Bible can imagine the world on the other side of slavery? Mm-hmm. And so that the the very attempt to do that, and to do this, do that, I'm as free as I can possibly be. But I felt like for me, and not just for me, for my ancestors, 
they found a way to say that these in these texts they saw they found a god who was a friend and not an enemy and i was wondering how i could do that again in my day sorry about that my daughter is like i just want to sit with my daddy <laughs> <laughs> so i was saying that um there's this tendency to either downplay the scripture on one side as um depicting kind of good slavery versus bad slavery that we saw in the first century and there's this other tendency to say slavery it can't be um, in any sense, the Bible taken as a whole, can be in any sense good news to black people. And I want to say that historically, we black Christians have found a way to see in the text of the Old and New Testament, God is a friend and not an enemy. So was, I was attempting to bear witness to that tradition in our day in light of the present conversation. So that's what I was trying to do. And some people would think the very attempt to do that, the very attempt to even say anything about it um, is some kind of like, internalized colonialization or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so um, I felt like it was an issue that I couldn't avoid. And mm -hmm. there was no win for me other than like doing, telling the truth as best as I can understand it. Because mm -hmm. the tendency when it comes to slavery is to throw away that part of scripture and to say we can't trust scripture um, as it relates to that part of the portion on slavery. Um, do you see that as people kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater as far as throwing scripture away because of the slavery portion? Yeah, I mean, I, I would try to think about how I would say, like, trust that part of the text. I think what I would say is try to make sense of the reality of how slavery is depicted within God's wider. And I think that there is a way of reading the Bible and seeing in the Bible God's desire for our liberation and not our oppression. Mm -hmm. And Pennington asked the question, right? He says, if God wills what happened to us, that if God thought that was good, I need another faith, another God, and another Bible. And so I think that Pennington put words to the black angst. We're the whip and the chain, right? That we experienced something that God saw as in any sense good for us. And I want to say that the God of the Bible says no. And I wanted to make the argument as to how I could say that. Um, and not just how I could say it, how other Christians throughout time, black Christians who have experienced it could say the same thing. Mm -hmm. And and there was not, Paul didn't just have one view of slavery in a sense. He said, you know, if you can't get free, get free. So he wasn't just necessarily telling everybody just to stay there. If you have the opportunity to get out, he yeah. you in the chapter, I try not to, I don't think we start with Paul. Mm -hmm. And this, so, so I talk about this, this is, I, I use the example of like Lord of the Rings theology um, versus like black canonical theology. Mm -hmm. Like what, what it, it was the slave masters who said that the first place you begin to ask, answer the question about slavery is Paul's letters. Black mm -hmm. people said, well, hold on, liberates a whole group of people. And so when you begin to like look at the, the redemptive narrative as a whole, right? If you begin to say, well, what is God like? And what does God will for humanity? What does God's future look like? If you begin to ask all of those questions first, and then you begin to get an understanding of like God's character as it's revealed throughout the entire narrative, and then you begin to make sense of Paul, then you might get somewhere. If you begin to use Paul as the filter through which to read the entirety of the Bible, then you end up finding ways to explain away the Exodus. And this is what the slave masters did, right? They said, well, hold on. Whatever happened in the Exodus is not as important as what we see in this Paul passage. And so what I, what I want to say then is the God who emerges from Genesis to Revelation is the God who wills our liberation. And I'm always, I'm, and I've said this a thousand times, people might get tired of me saying it. It is important to ask questions in the right order. The devil quotes scripture, right? And it wasn't the fact that when the devil quoted the scriptures, when him and Jesus are interacting, it wasn't the devil quoted texts that weren't true. It's that the work that the devil made those scriptures do bore false witness about God's character because he put the text in the wrong order and he put them to purposes for which they were not intended. And so what I say is when we take a step back and say, ask this question, here's the question. When, why does God, why does God choose and enslave people or allows his people to be enslaved and then set them free as a foundational narrative for the people of God. He mm -hmm. talked about it in Deuteronomy and Exodus. He says, I want you to remember, I want you to remember what you experienced in Egypt when you interact with other people. And so there's this tension in the text between this reality that 
God liberates people. And mm -hmm. he tells people, because of this liberation, I want you to be merciful upon the weak. Mm -hmm. And the reality that there are these depictions of slavery in the Bible and it's regulated in the Bible. And so then the question becomes, well, which one did God intend to win out? Mm -hmm. Did God intend the, the depictions of slavery to become normative? Mm -hmm. Or did God have as his will the Exodus narrative to become paradigmatic for the people of God? And the answer to that question comes when you get to the New Testament. Because when Jesus dies, right, when does he die? During Passover, the story of the liberation of the slaves. So you can't tell the story of Christianity or Judaism without at the middle of that story telling the story of liberation. And so I think that when you begin to, to understand like those texts as beginning the beginning point of our conversation and then begin to go through the other texts that way, I think you find ourselves in a much healthier place emotionally and spiritually. And that's just the way that like Pennington and, and other people have read the Bible. They started with these huge swaths of scripture and said that the canon tells one story that we can discern as you read the Bible from Genesis to, to Revelation. And I talk about this in the book. Like when you get to the end of all things, when we kind of come into the kingdom of God, we don't come into the kingdom of God into eternity shackled. We come in free. And a part of what it means to be a Christian is to live now in light of your future. This is like, I, we, we, we're presently holy now. And mm -hmm. the fact that one day we're going to be holy in a, new, in a new creation. What if God wills our eschatological freedom, the freedom of the slaves, then part of what it means to be a Christian is to begin to do as much as you can to, to bring God's future into the present, into ecclesial communities. And so these are the kinds of ways you can begin to say that the Bible gives us the theological resources to imagine a world on the other side of slavery. Mm -hmm. Amen. You get a lot of flames and hand claps uh, in the in the comment section. Uh, I love uh, that um, that quote about telling the story, uh, asking the questions in the right order. I think that is extremely uh, powerful. I'm going to take uh, a question uh, from the comments. The first one comes from Princess Diana. How do you feel the difference between African community? How do you feel the difference? I'm, I'm assuming uh, they're just asking what's the difference between maybe how the African community and the black community uh, might interpret the text. I think she may be talking. Um, I'm not exactly sure the nature of that question. I can say that African-Americans have a different experience of Christianity. Sometimes, sorry, sometimes American born, this, this is all super complicated. What I want to say is <clears throat> the immigrant, exp the, the, the experience of immigration to the United States um, from parts of Africa, the African diaspora coming here, doesn't make them any less black or black in a different way. But sometimes because it's an immigrant experience and there is a ongoing connection with their, like with Nigeria, Kenya, and Uganda, there's a much more kind of like a realized connection to Uganda, Nigeria, whatever. And because of that, they might experience the world a little bit differently than African-Americans who are in some sense trying to construct an entire sense of who they are from that which has been cut off from them. So even if I go back and I can do a DNA test and find out that I'm Igbo or whatever that is, I can't actually my family. And so slavery for us then isn't just like it's not just a, it's not just the weight of like the legacy of what slavery did to black people in America. Um, it's the way in which it cut us off from our past. And sometimes that just creates a certain um, wrestling with these texts that might be different than, and I don't know, cause I'm not from the, I'm not from the diaspora who's moved here. If that's the question that she's asking, it might create a different kind of particular existential angst for us mm -hmm. because of the long-term like cultural impact on it. Cause like black culture in America obviously has elements of the African spirit, African culture that we kept despite the slave trade. But in some sense, we had to reconstruct who we were from scratch. And all of that trauma sits with us in a unique way as the descendants of slaves. That doesn't mean that other black people don't experience racism. It doesn't mean that there's not racism in like um, other parts of the world or that, you know, black people, it, I, I'm not making that argument. I'm talking about the ways in which slavery might impact us in a different way. If that's the question that she's asking. Mm -hmm. Uh, the next question, um, Armand asks, what do you say to someone looking to speak into justice issues and be change agents from the biblical perspective? 
Preach the whole counsel of God, man. You got to do a real, it's real hard not to see justice in the Bible. I mean, Jesus straight up started his first sermon by saying the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And, and nobody doubts this. Nobody doubts this. If you go to the New Testament and you open it up, you see Jesus preaching about the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Repent, the kingdom of God is here, which raises the question, well, what is the kingdom? The kingdom is nothing other than the God's just kingdom depicted in the Psalms. Go back and read the Psalms. God who's defender of orphans and widows. Go back and read the prophets. Jesus says, like, you know, you search the scriptures because you think in them you find eternal life, but the scriptures testify about me. He talks about himself as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. That means that what the prophets taught, right, are is the same thing that Jesus embodies in his ministry. And what do you see Jesus doing in his ministry? Caring for the weak, the marginalized. And he does all of that while at the same time giving the marginalized agency, right? He says to the, those who are poor, he tells them to change their actual spiritual circumstance. You can be poor and holy. He thinks that's a possibility. And the last thing I'll say about that is that I don't know who distorted the Great Commission. I don't know who did it. But the Great Great Commission says, go into the world, teaching them to obey everything that I commanded you. Well, then what did Jesus actually command? Jesus embodies a, a ministry towards the marginalized and the stepped on peoples of the world. And then Jesus went and says, you do the stuff that I did. And we somehow turned it into you go and only evangelize, don't meet the, the real needs of the people. So a holistic appropriation of the kingdom of God and as a part of the evangelistic proclamation of the gospel is going to include service to those who are in need. Mm-hmm. If you're in a, and if you're in a society where the people who are in need can't get the things that they need because the systems are in place to keep them stepped on, then it's part of your work as a, as a, as a person to take the knee off of their back. Right. It's hard to listen to that term. You've been in church and you're hungry and you're trying to listen to the sermon, but, you, but your stomach's turning on you. You said you need a sandwich. Then you can listen. Mm-hmm. So these people with no food to eat and, and no job and no hope, no hope. I'm not saying it's impossible. The gospel can come anywhere. But sometimes giving them a sandwich, giving them some, some hope provides the context into which the gospel can continue to move and breathe and do what God wants it to do. Amen. That is so helpful. Um, the next question is, how much, if any, did N.T. Wright help you think through this work? <laughs> oh, man. Um, so it's really funny because none of this stuff was in my dissertation. Mm-hmm. So um, my dissertation with Tom um, or N.T. Wright was um, just about Galatians and like Paul and the inheritance. But when we weren't doing the dissertation, you I was saying Tom so casually. <laughs> <laughs> When we, were working, when, we were working on, when we were working on the dissertation, I mean, when we weren't working on that, I would talk to him and I would say, you know, a lot of the stuff that you say about the kingdom of God um, and the importance of the Exodus and understanding early Christianity is the same stuff they say in the black church. So I know that you, I mean, like I said, I know that you get all of this credit for like reinvigorating the kingdom in kind of New Testament studies and Paul against empire and all of that other stuff. I was like, but my black pastor in Huntsville was saying that in like 1989. So I found this strange confluence of um, the emphasis on the opposition to the empire mm-hmm. um, and the importance of the kingdom of God, which Tom Wright is great, but he didn't invent that. We were saying it too. He didn't get it from us. It's just a place where those things kind of came together. And so I told him that like, I found interestingly enough that when black people do read him, they tend to resonate with what he says precisely because of those reasons. The other thing that like, um, Tom does is because they take the New Testament use of the Old Testament very seriously and they begin to see how much Jesus draws from the prophets. And so he's always talking about like how Isaiah influences Jesus and influences Paul. And you know, with us black folks, we love Isaiah because Isaiah is like the wokest prophet. He's the one who's talking about, you know, woe to you who add house to house and field to field until there's no room left in the land. He said, yeah, he's the one. I mean, Jesus, sorry, this is the thing. We talk about like how, what kind of resources do I need? Jesus straight up begins his first sermon with Isaiah 58 when he's quoting in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 19, he gives his first sermon. Mm-hmm. And what does he draw from the first sermon? Isaiah. And what is he, what part of Isaiah does he draw from? 
He draws upon the portion of Isaiah where he talks about the people who have this fake religiosity, but then step on the poor. And he says, the kind of fast that I choose is the loosing of bonds and the loosing of yokes. And then he quotes the, the portion about Jubilee, the, the, the forgiveness of death. Mm-hmm. Somehow when we start talking about justice, we're trying to talk about how we lost the plot. What I would love to do is to hear someone articulate an account of Christianity that doesn't rely upon the prophets for its ethical impulses and see if you can even construct. You can't even you can't talk about Paul or the um, Gospels or even the book of Revelation without bringing in the prophets. And once you bring in the prophets, you have all the justice stuff that we talk about. And so because I saw those things in Tom, it was very easy for me to translate basically what I, bring that into conversation with what I knew about from kind of the African-American preaching tradition that I knew about. So, and the other thing about the prophets, sorry, this is the last thing. The prophets will tell you the truth about yourselves. The prophets have an edge to the way that they speak, a boldness and audacity. And that same kind of audacity that I saw in like the black church, mm-hmm. where the pastor would just say something and you kind of go, can he say that? Can he do that? And so I think that like what um, Tom did was gave me more confidence in my appropriation of the prophetic literature that was already a part of my spiritual background growing up. Dope, dope. Um, next question, what is the most misused on contextualism when communicating with people about slavery and the Bible? The most misused contextualism. I'm not exactly sure I understand the question. Um, could you provide more clarity in the comments? Uh, you want to go to the next question? Why are they providing more clarity? Okay. Uh, what perspective does a black overseas missionary have to offer? Should African American Christians pursue a place in predominantly white missions organizations? I'll tell you, it was kind of funny. I think that like black missionaries are important because sometimes it can help overcome a stereotype. I can just tell you, I spent six weeks in South Africa once. I'll never forget. I went to um, the post office. I wanted to mail a letter back home. This is back when we used to mail letters. Don't think about, don't worry about that, young people. <laughs> so I went there and I said, hey man, can I can I mail something to the other? And the South African brother there started laughing at me. I'm like, what's, what's so funny? And he literally goes, Jay-Z, Tupac. He, he sounds like one of these black rappers in America. And so he's like, literally like racially stereotyping me. And I said, why? <laughs> and I said, and so he, and we got into this conversation. He said that the only only people who they, the black people who they saw were the black people who they saw on television. So they thought we were all rappers and drug dealers. Once you hear my American accent and all the white kids who they saw were these missionaries. So it creates the perception that like the white kids in America are willing to toss away everything and come and serve, you know, the people of South Africa, where maybe it may seem like we don't have the same concerns. And I explained to them this a little bit more complicated, there's funding issues. And so I always think that there is something, there's something that connects the black diaspora um, with like the continent itself. You can see it even in like the way in which Christianity is practiced in part. You can see that even when the language is different, the, the, the close affinity, because I think we carry some of that with us. And I think that part of what a black missionary does is overcome that estrangement. It brings together kind of those parts of the black family so that we might together glorify God. Now, as it relates to white missionary organizations, I say that with any like organization, you have to make sure that organization isn't toxic to your black life. And mm-hmm. if you're in a situation that is toxic and you can't be your full black free Christian self, then don't do it. Um, now there is no utopia. So there is no organization that's free of fallenness and free of human sin, but you shouldn't be traumatized. And so if there is an organization that allows you to be you and do the ministry that God called you to do, I would say, go ahead and do it. Awesome. That's helpful. Um, I want to pause for the calls because I want people to uh, remember to register for the Through Eyes of Color virtual experience coming up August 1st through the 3rd. Esau McCauley. Make that money. money. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Esau McCauley will be one of our our speakers there. He's going to be talking about something similar to this, but how to interpret problematic passages. Uh, And so if you want to hear that, lectures from uh, Vince Bontu, uh, Charlie Dates, um, myself, and others. We have uh, uh, Dr. Cynthia James, a whole host of people. Uh, I think it's like 19 presenters in total. So uh, definitely register for that at througheyesofcolor.com. And we're going to get into 
our next question. Um, they they gave some clarification on the question we had before. Um, says, I'm sorry, how do people misuse scripture when talking about slavery in the Bible? Well, I thought so. So let me I try. Not, I don't want to repeat the whole argument of the chapter, so I want you to read it. But it really is beginning to ask the question about like what what, what is God's will for the world? Mm-hmm. What is God's will for the world? And so one of the ways the scripture is misused is we take a text in like the first century where Paul has no economic or political or real cultural power. This doesn't excuse like the reality of slavery in the first century in the church. But you have this place where Paul is trying to make sense in the first century of the church's life about how to deal with this problem that exists. And he kind of gives the advice that he gives. And now you fast forward that idea 2000 years later, where you're in a democratic republic, where Christians are the majority of the country. And if there is something that they want it done, they could pass laws to change it. And then you can begin to ask the question, well, what is this? Not does what the scripture allow, but what is God's will? And this is when I started talking about the story about the divorce question. When Jesus and the Pharisees were having an argument about divorce, and they said, here's this passage in Deuteronomy where Paul says, well, God says you can divorce people, and they want Jesus to exegete the passage. This is why, this is why you got mad at me when I didn't exegete First Timothy. He said, hey, Jesus, here's this passage in Deuteronomy. There's one or two options. Like, you know, should we allow divorce or not? And Jesus does this thing. He says, listen. In the beginning, it wasn't that way. God created the man and woman to be together forever. Now, this is not about divorce. I'm not in your business. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying at all. What Jesus is saying, though, he's saying that before you begin to ask the question about how to apply a particular passage, the first question you have to ask is about God's creational intent. And God's creational intent were for man and woman to enjoy each other forever. And the divorce laws that we see are a manifestation of the fall. What happens when human sin gets involved? And we have to find ways to regulate and limit the damage that we do to one another, which is why divorce sometimes occurs. So then when you apply that same question to slavery, if you begin to ask this question, does the Bible allow for slavery? It's the wrong question. Well, what is God's will for humanity? So then you go back to creation. As you look at the creation story, you look at Adam and Eve and what was intended in Eden. Is there any sense in which God intends our slavery? And the answer to that question, you can see no. And then if you look at the end of the Bible, and say, well, as we look towards God's the consummation of God's, God's kingdom, do we see that God wants people in that kingdom as slaves? So God's beginning and God's future involve freedom. Then it's possible for the Christian to say, well, in the present, then I can begin to embody that freedom now. And so when we begin to ask the question of what is allowed instead of what God intends, what God wills, what God wants for us is a place where we get ourselves into trouble. That's one thing. The other thing I would say really briefly it's like we can try to lie and say, like, it's just like having a job. There were slaves who were rich, but there were also slaves who were sexually assaulted. So you can't just say, well, because the Bible, there's there are forms of slavery in the Greco-Roman world that weren't that bad. Therefore, all depictions of slavery in the Bible aren't that bad. Therefore, you can take a slave passage and treat it like a worker, co-worker thing. I think that's the misuse of the text. I think the best way if you're going to ask me um, to talk about something like First Timothy is to really look at it canonically and look at it as Paul doing the best that he can to rethink every institution that exists in light of the gospel. And this, sorry, I have to do this. I love to do this analogy. And I say like everybody probably who's listening to this is either listening to this on the phone or they're streaming it through their computer. And everybody who is watching this knows that our technology, the things that we use were created by, for the most part, exploitative labor somewhere. If it's not our clothes or our phones or our shoes or our computer, we know that part of our economic system exists because of the exploitation of the majority world. We know it. It's not a question. There's probably some kid in a slave shop who is suffering so that we can get our Nikes or whatever. And we know it. But the question is, well, why do we take our shoes off? Because one day someone's going to find another economic system that creates the things that we need that doesn't depend on exploitation. And they're going to look back 200 years from now and say, how did those people who call themselves Christian in 2020 allow these things to happen? Because we have not yet been able to imagine a world on the other side of this economic exploitative system. And so what we do instead is we make compromises. We say, oh, okay, my eggs were free range, but I went to McDonald's and I'm not going to worry about where they got their sandwiches from. And so we're, we, what we try to do is we try to say, I'm going to do as little damage 
in this broken system as I can and keep some form of Christian integrity. And if we're honest with ourselves, we will, honest, we will admit that it's not enough. I'm not saying it's the same thing as slavery. What I'm saying is you can see Paul struggling to do a similar Roman Empire. And Paul says, well, given this, here are the things we can do. Which is why in other places when Paul says the things like we talk about in 1 Timothy, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 or 7, when Paul says chapter 7, if you can get free, get free, it shows that Paul recognizes that slavery steps on people in a certain way. And if it is possible, the Christian should obtain their freedom. But he also sometimes talks about what happens when you can't. When the fact that he talks about it in some places makes people difficult. The last thing I'll say is that like, we might ask the question, if Paul is alive or someone's alive and they're trying to write a letter to the church in Afghanistan, that's heavily um, not as free and, and women don't have the same kind of freedom of expression. And a woman says, you know, now that I'm in Christ, I want to be able to do A, B and C. When the reality is in that culture in Afghanistan, those things aren't available to her. And so how does Paul then counsel her to live as a Christian within those strictures. It doesn't mean that he baptizes them. It doesn't mean he doesn't recognize the problems with them. It's that are we, can we allow that Paul is attempting to think through those things? And so when we don't fully sit with the weight of what slavery was, mm-hmm. we tend to misuse scripture. When we don't have any sympathy for the complexities of the kinds of questions that we're facing, um, then I think we can kind of misuse scripture. When we don't recognize the ways in which our responsibilities are different in a democratic republic, when we have the power, right? When we have the power, we're the, they were the majority and they did this to us. That's the difference. You've got to understand how those differences work mm-hmm. and what they mean for the Christian life and witness. Mm-hmm. That's helpful. As you were talking about um, Afghanistan, I thought about the Harriet Tubman film and when she went back, did you see that? I'm not. I'm not seeing it. I can't watch. I can't watch. I mean, I cannot watch a black depiction of slavery. I can't. Like, I, like emotionally, I can't. Matter of fact, post. I'm, I'm just not. This is. No, I just can't watch us suffer. I read about it too much. And even though I know we kind of get free, I just when someone, someone, if somebody hits a black person on film, I feel that in my soul. Mm-hmm. I haven't watched any of it. I'm, y'all don't get mad at me. I don't even watch the movies of the civil rights movement where they, the black people are marching and then they come out with the, the hoses and the dogs and that's, that's depicted. I saw that on like in real film. Mm-hmm. Like I saw it. And so I just don't, I don't, I don't see it. Anyways, go ahead. I'm not saying y'all shouldn't. Just like I just, I just can't, I can't watch black trauma. That's the reason mm-hmm. why I watch those videos when they shoot black people on television. Like I've seen enough. I'm here as it relates to black trauma. Mm-hmm. Oh, it made me think of the film because in the film um, she tries to go back and get her sister and her sister doesn't want to leave and she's like you know everybody can't be like you and so I begin to think about that and how would a Christian write to her sister Harriet can, can there's some people that want to go with her that want to get free but there's some people who aren't comfortable on the run because they have children how do you minister to them in that space if they want to stay it's it's if in that context of Paul writing, he's writing to people who can't get free in some in some cases. How do you advise them to to navigate that space? Um, and that's what it makes me think of in the in the film. Yeah, and, and I always like to say to people, there's a difference between saying, I understand what Paul was saying, and admitting that we're not limited to the solutions that Paul offers. Mm-hmm. We're not. This is how Paul, I mean it, we are now in a in a situation where we had where the Christians had a cult. Let me take a step back. First of all, and this is like people need to understand this before they get co- crazy in the comments. It wasn't about the interpretation of First Timothy chapter six anyway. That wasn't where all of this started. The justification of black slavery was not simply rooted in the interpretation of First Timothy chapter six. It was rooted in a false anthropology that they constructed based upon pseudoscience about what they said black people were. Mm-hmm. And so they used that fake anthropology as the lens through which they read Paul, because you know what they didn't say? They didn't say that those Pauline texts apply to any white people. There was no permanent chattel slavery for white people in the United States after they found black people. And they, they brought this toxic mix of a, a totalizing reading of Paul and of faulty anthropology of what black people were. So they did believe that slavery didn't apply to them. 
They thought that it applied to Paul. So nobody has thought that the slave passages are universally applicable. They said, no, no, no. In light of who we are in Christ now, that's the reason. The reason they didn't want to baptize Christians at first, because there was a practice in place that if you baptize somebody, you have to set them free. And they put black people in a different category so they can baptize them and keep them slaves. So mm -hmm. even the slave masters knew that in theory, Christianity should have put pressure on the institution. So what did mm -hmm. they do? They constructed an anthropology. And so this has never been a disinterested reading of Paul, where I'm sitting here trying to make special like arguments and just sitting back there just saying, I'm just trying to do what First Timothy says. No, they had money, they had um, they had land, they had their own lust and desires distorting their reading of the text. Mm -hmm. What part of the game is that? Sorry. <laughs> no, you're good, you're good. I'm looking for the, uh, the uh, question. Here it is. Um, Dr. McCauley, uh, do you have a favorite chapter and were there any chapters difficult to write? I think you already talked about the difficult one, policing and this chapter on slavery. Um, but what was your favorite chapter? Um, the favorite portion of the book, I don't know if people are gonna love it, is when I talk about the gospel of Luke. And I think it's the reading while black chapter where I talk about Zachariah and Elizabeth as kind of a metaphor for black grandmothers and grandfathers who raised us in the faith. And that was emotional for me because at the heart of the book is this idea that we have to take the, the testimony of our ancestors seriously. And so for me, the favorite, I, I just, I had that, um, that part, I felt like that was a, um, I was carried along by the spirit when I was writing that I was worshiping. And so, um, that was, that was there. I would say the hardest part besides the freedom of the slaves, I don't want people to um, misinterpret the argument that I'm making there. The other one was black rage, because there's a way of Christianity um, being seen as the means of like pacifying black people. Mm. And I didn't want to talk about kind of our experiences in this country in a way that kind of minimizes it and say, let's just take it all to the cross. The journey for the cross to the cross for black people is a, a rugged one. And so the, the section called a litany of suffering um, on um, what should we do with this rage was a lot. And um, that was that was when I was listening to a lot of hip hop. I consider hip hop certain forms of, 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 of kind of secular hip hop as impeccatory songs. <laughs> and so I was I was in my feelings during that part. So those two things are hard for me to write. Um, I mean, that was hard for me to write in the part about Luke and Zachariah and Elizabeth and Theophilus were probably my favorite portions to write. And even like um, an exercise in hope, if I'm thinking, actually my favorite chapter is probably, I love, it depends on like, it's like asking about your kids. I like chapter one. Mm -hmm. Chapter one, it was just like, I wanted, I wanted the book to feel, they asked me like, what do you want for the cover? They say, what do you want from the title? Like, I came up with the title, but like, they said, what? I said, I want this book to feel black. And I said, what's the blackest possible thing I can imagine as a Southerner? And the blackest yeah. event in my Southern life was when I was a kid and Andre 3000 was standing at the Source Awards and he said, the South got something to say. And I was like, we in the building when I was in high school. And so I was like, you know what? I want it, I want it for anyone who opened up the book. In the first chapter, I wanted them to know this isn't your, this, 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 this ain't empty right. <laughs> something else. And so um, writing that book and writing that um, chapter was fun because it was like me, like finding myself in the writing process. Mm. Because I wanted to locate, I wanted to locate the book in my neighborhood, mm -hmm. um, in my community. Um, it sounds bad because it's like for us and by us. I don't want to, I don't know if Fubu still kicking around, but um, <laughs> I wanted to have something that felt like it was from the, just not just black and Christian, but black Christian and Southern. Mm -hmm. and so um, I don't know. So I enjoy writing that part too. So probably that part was the part that I found um, difficult. I mean, I'm really entertaining to write. So you have something at the end called the bonus track, which makes it feel very um, <laughs> ethnic. Am I, am I freeze? Okay, I froze a little bit, but uh, in the bonus track, you you mentioned the contributions of women, uh, how women interpret scripture. 
Yeah. Um, why was that important for you um, to highlight uh, womanist theologians yeah. and just those who may be uh, womanist adjacent? <laughs> well, well, I'll talk about that, but the women don't just show up at the end of the book. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, my, right. mom, my mom kind of frames um, the first chapter and, and there's Mother Pollard who opens up one chapter. There's Nina Simone um, who opens up another chapter. And there's um, women of scholars who I interacted with at different points in the book. Um, I think that like, it's true. This is, this is what I want to say. As an African-American man, I deal with the issues of racism. And that's kind of, I'm a male and I experience racism for, for being black in America. But I don't experience sexism. I don't. And so um, one of the things that um, has been eye-opening for me, and this isn't the entirety of what women have to say as it relates to biblical interpretation that there is sexism in the world. They have much more to offer. They're exegetes like we are. But understanding that um, black women have their own unique sets of challenges that they have to deal with and how they bring those challenges to the text and, and they wrestle with those challenges um, as Christians is something that I wanted to highlight and say, we need everybody involved in the interpretive process to be able to understand the mind of Christ. And so um, womanist is one manifestation of um, African-American female biblical interpretation. There's some women who, who identify as black feminists. There's some black scholars who just identify as scholars. And so I wanted to highlight um, as best as I could the contributions and not just the contributions, but the idea that they have value. And they ask important questions that it doesn't do us any good to just kind of push to the side. So um, that was important for me. And I really wanted, I really think that really this book is at least framed as one son's public articulation of the faith given to him by his mother. Mm. And so the, the like prime theologian in the book, if she's listening here, is, is Laurie McCauley, my mom. She's the one who took me to church. She's the one who taught me the scriptures. And so it's not just like the, the academic um, black women whose work is important. I wanted to talk, I wanted the church mothers um, to see themselves in this text. And so I wanted to say that, I wanna say that there are, and that's the reason why Zachariah and Elizabeth are so important to me because Elizabeth in, this, in the book is depicted as a, as a black grandmother, um, metaphorically. And so I wanna say that black women played an important part in my own spiritual development. And I tried to bear witness to that as best as I could in, in the text. I could have done better. It's really, I wanted to, that's one of the chapters that I didn't put in because um, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't ready. But there is like, I, I felt like there should have been, there's a chapter that I should have written that I didn't write was something about like um, sexism or like the, the questions of the, the black woman is raising. But at the time when I started writing the book, I wasn't ready to write that chapter yet. Mm -hmm. um, and so maybe I'll get there in the future and interact with those things in a deeper way. But that was one chapter that I didn't, I didn't include, but I thought about it. I said, I should say something. But I don't know if I can really step inside that experience yet and articulate it in a way that captures it. So mm -hmm. I'm going to take uh, one more question. And this question um, says that all makes sense in terms of Paul. He is essentially saying if you are a slave, then X, Y and Z. But how do you speak to passages like Leviticus 25, where it says you can buy foreign slaves and they can be your property forever? I deal with the exact chapter issue of Leviticus chapter 25 in the book. <laughs> so, and part of me wants to say, read the chapter. That was, and it's not, it's not that. So, this is what I try to say. Oh, I can't, I can't. They had to really, the answer to that question is to read the chapter. But I'll say two things okay. about uh, foreign slaves in the Bible. There's two sources of foreign uh, of slavery as it relates yeah, to. I don't want to interrupt you, but your mom said she loves you. Oh, hey, mom. <laughs> uh, um, there's two places where slaves were often gotten in the um, uh, Old Testament. One is through debt slavery and the other one was through war. This is how you got foreign slaves. And the, one of the things I talk about in the book, this is only part of the argument, is that this is why we have to take the prophetic literature seriously. Because when Paul, when Isaiah talks about beating their swords into plowshares and they study no war no more, the eschatological vision of peace carries with it the end of war-based slavery because if there's no war, there is no slaves to capture. Mm -hmm. 
The other thing that he talks about as relates to the Messianic kingdom is the idea of material abundance, right? They will, they will come to the mountain of the Lord and eat all of this food. And so Isaiah also pictures this time of material abundance. And so we get to a place where there's material abundance, there's money for everybody, then debt slavery goes away. The third thing I'll say about this, maybe this is the part of the chapter, I'll give you more than I wanted to. But Isaiah and the prophets are very clear that one of the things that, gonna, that was supposed to happen was that the people were supposed to come to Zion to learn the law of the Lord and the law was supposed to go forth from Zion to the nation. This is kind of repeated all through the prophets. It's hiding in plain sight. Well, then what are the implications of the fact that the law was supposed to not just be adopted in Israel, but adopted by all the nations around Israel as they saw God blessing Israel? That means as the laws began to be implemented in those countries, permanent slavery ends there too. So the vision of the Old Testament is the universal application of the law throughout the entire area, which carries with it the end of permanent slavery. But the issue is because of human sin, we never actually get to this eschatological vision of the, the law going to the entire nations around. And if, it, if the law goes around, then the law is about re releasing your indigenous slaves after seven years comes. And so if in theory, the vision of the prophets and even the vision of the Old Testament had come to fruition, you would see the universal um, application of the law, such as the Leviticus 25 foreigner category, eventually would have ceased to exist. Dope, that's helpful. Um, I'm gonna sneak one more question in before we we, we end. Um, you touched on this um, in, in your interview before, but I think it's important as we're talking about slavery um, in the Bible that we also talk about uh, some safeguards when we're decolonizing our theology. Uh, how, how would you uh, instruct those who are trying to uh, not deconstruct, deconstruct uh, uh, decolonize uh, their theology? What are some things that you would, would uh, admonish them with? There is no safe place, is what I would say. There is no like de. We're always in danger of simply blindly receiving um, traditions, and so we can blindly receive kind of fundamentalism, or we can um, blindly receive you know um, you know progressivism or whatever you want to call it. And so what I see is a lot of people who take one system that was also has have roots of whiteness, and then just switch it for another white system with a, a slightly blacker face to it. And so what I want to say is that like at a certain point, you have to begin to ask yourself the question of what is true. And as a Christian, I always say you got to begin at the at the central point of like the Christian tradition. Was the tomb empty or was it not? And if the tomb was empty in like 30 AD, then what some slave master did in 1800 can't actually unresurrect Jesus. That's not how history works, right? We don't get to relitigate the empty tomb. The tomb was empty, and if the tomb was empty, then the world is a different place, even if people have failed profoundly. So the That's first a thing bar. Do, what was that? That's a bar. So the first thing we have to do is, I said, ask questions in the proper order. Was the tomb empty, right? You can't say, well, because you know my pastor was a jerk, that therefore Jesus is still dead. That's not how it works. Now, the second thing I want to say is, we have to respect the testimonies of the people who weren't colonized. You can say that, like, first of all, and this is, this is I'll leave this whole thing to Vince Banter. You can talk about kind of African Christianity that exists apart from nation. But the other thing I want to say is the foundational years of the black church are important because when the AME is founded, the AME leaves white spaces. Because they said these white Christians aren't actually behaving in a Christian manner. We need to have our own vine and fig tree. And they're doing this in rebellion against, they're decolonizing their faith. You know what they did? When they decolonized their faith, they kept the scriptures, they kept the Trinity, they kept salvation by grace. You know who else did the exact same thing? The Black Baptists. When the Black Baptists split off from the white Baptists because of racism, they're once again founding their own tradition. What they do? They kept the central teachings of Christianity. You can go to the Church of God in Christ. And what do the Pentecostals do? When they form their own tradition, not splitting off from a white denomination, but starting one themselves. What do they do when they're free to construct their faith for themselves in a racist society where people who called themselves Christians were lynching and killing them? They constructed their own theology. Read those texts. 
right? Who, what, what do you think Frederick Douglass and Fannie Lou Hamer and all these people actually believed about God? And we, trend, we, tend to, we tend to put them in this narrative to these people away from the faith when they themselves talk about the ways in which their faith influences the things that they do. We have receipts. Go back and read the narratives of the slaves. And so if you're going to talk about decolonizing your faith, either you say these, all these black people, Frederick Douglass, who says, what to the slave is for the society of America on their day. He came for them on their day. He was so colonized, he couldn't reject Jesus if he wanted to. Of course he could. But maybe it was the fact that, that Frederick Douglass was convinced about something, about the nature of the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And so it's possible for me to say the following things. The things that Christians did in the name of God were wicked and in some sense, un, some sense worthy of the judgment of God. And I'm glad I don't have to give an account for those things. Mm-hmm. But also say at the same time, Jesus died for my sins according to the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And say at the same time that the society that we live that we live in can't continue to step on black people. You can say all of those things and you can be free. And it's a, it's, it, it is the... It wasn't black people. I should say that. I shouldn't say that because there's been there's been the black secular critique of Christianity from the beginning. But what I want to say is that like there has been a form of Christianity that kept these things in tension. And at the heart of this book is the attempt to articulate that that ethos for um, another day. Dope. You got the flames strong, precisely. Wow. And yes, sir, in the comment section. So I think that resonated uh, with a lot of people. I'm so excited about this book. Um, everybody, make sure you go get get uh, Esau's book. Hold up your copy, Esau. It's downstairs. Man. Oh, it's yeah. You, you had this. Y'all got, to see, y'all got to see me go through my house. <laughs> um, and remember to look up in the comments. I don't know if it's pinned up there, but if you go to University Press's website, you can get it for 40% off with free shipping. Um, and there's a code. I think, it's I think it's sold out on IVP. Oh, it's sold out? Ah. You might have to wait a minute. I don't know. Ah. IVP getting their feelings to say it'll be here in a minute. So I'm just kidding, IVP. <laughs> I'm not mad. I'm happy to be here. So, um, I told you, Esau, you famous. So, yeah, I think you can get it. I think you can get it on IVP. And if it's not there now, it should be there. Like it should be back in the in the warehouse for IVP in the next day or two. Okay. All right. Uh, so y'all check on IVP if it's not there. Uh, it should be there in the day, in like he said, next day or two. On Thursday, I think. So you know. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so forty uh, percent off. Uh, somebody said, "Come on, sold out." I see uh, Doctor Charles Goodman in there. He said, "Great job, <laughs> Doc." Uh, hey, uh, Charles. What am I? What is that? <laughs> I'm going to talk to him on the phone. They said it sold out. They tried yesterday. So, uh, yeah. So grab the book. Thank you, Esau, for being with us. Remember, register for Through Eyes of Color. Get the book. Get the curriculum Through Eyes of Color. Uh, chapter six. We uh, steal some of uh, quotes from Dr. Esau McCauley for problematic pa- for the uh, places of contention. Uh uh, chapter. Uh, so um, thank you all. Remember, you can donate at the Jew3project.org. Every gift helps equip. And there's some great news today. Uh, we we signed the uh, lease for our new offices in our studio. So you will get to see a whole new uh, setup coming from the Jew3 Project soon. Uh, so we're build your own table, people. Build your own table. Uh, we you are. Uh, so we're we're excited about what will come and what God will do uh, with the opportunities that He's granted to us. Um, so thank you all for watching, um, and we'll uh, see you next time here at the Jew Three Project. We're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew Three Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.ju3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged 
in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.